Thank you, Nancy, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany as we begin a new series. You received a book when you came in called Constant. It's a production uh, or publish, publishing of, of Bethany here, and we will be looking at this over the course of the next several weeks, The Heartbeat of Hope in Scripture. In the book, you have uh, personal reflection questions for each sermon between now and Thanksgiving, as well as questions for families and uh, devotional responses. And so uh, hope you'll use the book, bring it every Sunday. We won't have new ones for you every Sunday, so keep the book. If you lose, if you lose it, uh, second copy's available for a million dollars. Um, <laughs> but the first copy's free, so that's great. And so kind of keep it with you. Now, there'll be other copies here, but try and uh, not use too many. Please join me, we'll pray as we begin this series, about which I'm excited, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. Father, thank you that we can gather within these walls to listen for your voice. We trust, pray, and hope that your Holy Spirit would shape us to be people of hope in our city and in our world. We're mindful, even today, <laughs> that we live in a world of terror, uh, a world of deception, a world uh, uh, where... Politicians are lacking integrity, a world very uh, shaken right now. Would you ground us in your hope in order that we might be people of hope right in the midst of all that's happening? And we'll thank you for that as we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So the, the title of this series is, is Constant, The Heartbeat of Hope in Scripture. And it's our desire to equip the people of Bethany to become people of relentless hope and light in our city and the world, no matter what's happening outwardly. And so it's a very appropriate series for the moment because a lot of things are happening outwardly that, that are discouraging to people. And God is calling us and inviting each of us to see over and over again through the scriptures that God has this story of hope that is this grand arc in the whole Bible. And I'm gonna show you that in many different ways over the course of the next several weeks. So this is... For those who are, are regularly here at Bethany, this is a series unlike any other in that we're not going through a particular book of the Bible, but we're looking at different themes and going through the whole Bible. And so that by the end, you'll have a little book here called Constant, hopefully filled with truth that will help you understand the whole of Scripture in a better way and understand the story that God is writing. Now, so we're beginning this morning, and I have to talk about why story matters I was talking to a producer one time on an airplane, a movie producer, and I, I was always curious about this, and I said to him, aren't you ever afraid that you guys are gonna run out of stories, right? Like, how, how do, I always wonder how there can be thousands of movies produced every year, and how do they never run out of stories? And he said to me, well, I'll let you in a dirty little secret, there's only seven plots, <laughs> all stories, can be reduced to seven, and I didn't know this, but a guy has written a book actually called The Seven Basic Plots. It's amazing, and you know what it's about just by the title. It's a good title. And so he explains in that book not only why we tell stories, but he explains how every story basically will fall into these seven stories. And then there's only eight chapters in the book because there's one chapter about what he calls the meta-narrative. There's, there's actually one story, not even seven. There's one. There's actually at least only one that resonates deeply with who we are. There's one story. So I'm going to quote from this book called The Seven Basic Plots. This is what the author says. The meta plot begins with the anticipation stage in which the hero is called to the adventure, followed by the dream stage in which the adventure begins and the hero has some success 
and an illusion of invincibility. However, it's then followed by the frustration stage in which the hero has his first confrontation with the enemy and the illusion of invincibility is lost. This worsens in the nightmare stage, which is the climax of the plot, where hope apparently is lost. And finally, uh, there's resolution, and the hero overcomes the burden and against all odds triumphs, right? I mean, this is the story. It's, it's one story. And so over the course of the next few weeks, you'll see this over and over again, in these kind of what I call four chapters, creation, disruption, hope, and culmination. And I, I being, like, when I'm not here with you at Bethany, I'm out teaching, I have to, I, not only do I use my hands, I have to write as well. So because this is teaching heavy, I'm going to write a little bit along the way. And this is what we see, four chapters over and over again in the Bible, creation, disruption, hope, and not only in the Bible, but in every narrative. Creation, there was a shire. <laughs> and the, the hobbits were all happy, and everybody's got food and drink and gardens, and uh, they're just dancing and making merry. And then there was a ring, right? And the ring was discovered, and it's the one ring that rules them all and binds them in darkness, and darkness began uh, uh, overtaking the whole earth. And then nobody knew what to do because the ring had to be destroyed, and it was indestructible, save for going to Mount Doom. And no one wanted to go there because to go there would be to risk your life. And then little Frodo stands up at the very bottom when all hope is lost is when hope comes. I will carry the ring, says Frodo, and he does, and he destroys the ring, and basically happy ending, right? This happens over and over again. Lindsay Vaughn skier destroys her knee, 2013. Skips the Olympics and come back, comes back two years later with, with like a recovered knee and makes this amazing comeback. It's this story, right? Skiing, destroyed knee, restoration, victory. You see it in Rwanda, right? Nation, civil war, genocide, peace, restoration, and reconciliation. <laughs> you see it uh, in Star Wars. Han Solo, Death Star, um, Ewoks, happy ending. <laughs> you see it in Germany, right? Germany, World War I, World War II, Hitler, and then victory of the Allies and the defeat of Germany. The defeat of Germany actually becomes restoration so that I'm walking two summers ago in Oberstoffen on a Sunday, and here's a man, here's a man with a, he's got a handicapped kid to his right, and he's got an old man in a wheelchair that he's pushing at the same time. And it's a Sunday afternoon, and it's a, it's a city square, and so there's a band playing, and it's all the music's oompa, German stuff, and then this guy starts singing that song, uh, the refrain of which is, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And he's singing it in, in English, and I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, this is where the Nazis were killing these people. Over and over. And here's the deal, we love these stories. These stories of redemption. And why? Well, Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has placed eternity in everybody's heart. 
So there's something about those particular kinds of stories that resonate with all of us in the room, and God calls us to remember the stories, and there's a reason God calls us to remember the stories. I'm reading now uh, another, the last quote you'll hear from the day, but this is, this is an author who wrote the book, The Drama of Scripture. It's theology in narrative form. He says, in, in order to understand our world and make sense of our lives and make our most important decisions, we need to know which story we are living in. That's a pretty powerful statement. The way we understand our life depends on the conception we have of the human story. What is the real story, the grand story, of which my life is a part? What's the, what's the grand narrative? That's what we'll look at for the next two months, over and over again through themes and characters, but that grand narrative. And by seeing that grand narrative, uh, we gain a lens through which to interpret our own story, each of our own individual stories, and our stories at church, so that no matter where we are at a particular moment, we can live as people of hope. And the beauty of people who are deeply rooted in God's story is indeed they do become people of hope. Francis Collins is a scientist who was an atheist who became a Christian and he said the beginning of his journey to Christ came when uh, as a medical internist he was making rounds in an oncology ward with terminal cancer patients and he said I, I saw the incontrovertible evidence of the reality of Christ because every single patient who was terminally ill, who was a Christ follower, died with peace and hope. Everyone, that's what he said. And he said, I began to investigate then, wondering why them? Statistically, this was impossible. He's a scientist. <laughs> that led to the reading of C.S. Lewis, which led to the reading of the Bible, which led to one day when he was hiking, right here in the Cascades, backpacking, the sun comes up over the mountains, and he said, I knew that I knew that Christ is the way, and I got on my knees and I prayed right there. Why? Like the front door was this. He met people of hope who had cancer and were dying. Wow, this is significant. So over the next weeks, we want to look at this plot line over and over again through different characters. The character today of glory and then cosmos and shalom and work and rest and Sabbath and relationships, all these things. But today, glory in four acts. So we began with creation. We began with creation. And we're looking at glory in the Bible through the lens of creation. Excuse me, we're looking at glory in the Bible and we begin with the lens of creation and we, in, in the story. So, so the word for glory, the, the word actually implies heaviness and weight, right? And uh, what you find in the Old Testament is when the glory of God shows up, like in Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, after the tabernacle has been built by Moses, it says the glory of God showed up and Moses, it says, could not stand to enter because of the glory. In other words, this glory, though, though it's kind of, in a sense, intangible, as we read in Psalm 19, you can't hear anything and you can't even necessarily see anything, but, the, but, the, but it's there and it's so powerful that you have to bow down. Exodus chapter 40, 1 Kings chapter 8, when the more permanent uh, temple is built, it says in 1 Kings 8.10, Solomon could not even stand to enter because the glory of God had filled the building. And some of you maybe, maybe have had these experiences. I've had experiences where the only response, because the glory of God is so tangible, so powerful, the only response that's appropriate in the moment is to bow down and worship, literally, physically bow down. How many have had such an experience? You had to bow down. You just had to. I was uh, speaking to college students down in Southern California up at the San Bernardino Mountains, a place called uh, Breakaway. A thousand college students and I'm sitting in the very back row under this giant tent, and they're singing this song, and the, and the refrain in the song goes, I fall face down with your glory all around. 
and I, and I walk outside, and I look at a million stars in the Milky Way, and I'm, and I'm just mindful here that I'm so small, the heavens are so vast, God loves me, God knows me, God loves every one of these people. Each one of these people have a story, and God is writing a story of redemption and making their lives more beautiful than the stars, Psalm 8. And the only thing I could do was bow down. Bow down. Powerful glory. So God's intent was that glory would be seen in creation, yes, but also God's intent was that glory would be revealed through humanity. Genesis 1.30 says that when God made humanity, God made humanity in God's image. And we'll look at that much more in a couple of weeks, but right now I want you to see this. God's desire has always been for God's glory to be revealed in and through each one of us because if we're made in the image of God and God is glorious, each of us have a measure of glory. We still do Genesis 9. We're made in the image of God. And so that glory kind of breaks through when our lives are contributing to that which resonates deeply with the human heart. And when that happens, that's the glory of God. I'm convinced of it. So that when Yo-Yo Ma plays beautiful cello, it's the glory of God. It's an image bearer. When, I think when Russell Wilson scrambles, there's something there that's glorious, right? And it resonates with the human heart. When Henry Nowen quits his job as a professor and goes to work in a community for disabled adults, that's glorious. When Mother Teresa moves into the slums of Calcutta, that's glorious. When Shakespeare or John Steinbeck or Ernest Hemingway write a paragraph, it's glorious. And they're, they're just hints of glory, and it's tainted glory, but it reminds us of something right? We're made to shine, all of us. So, so, look, if you're here this morning, know this. You're made in God's image, and your calling then is in some measure to display the glory of God. So that's, that's where it begins. Of course, there's a story in the, in, of glory in the Bible that includes a, a disruption. Because as soon as we sinned, both we and creation lost our capacity to perfectly display the glory of God. And so, so it's all broken. And, and Romans 8 tells us that creation is groaning because it's not displaying the glory of God perfectly. And um, we have lost our capacity as image bearers to perfectly display God's glory. So the world is moving. It's being plunged into darkness. Throughout the Old Testament, you see it. And as it's being plunged into darkness, during the season of darkness, what happens uh, several times it's the glory of God kind of will break through. So like in Exodus uh, chapter 32 to 34, Moses prays and he says, God, uh, show me your glory. Like I can't continue to be a leader unless I'm receiving something and the thing that I need more than anything is not inspiration. I must, I must see the glory of God. The glory of God is what will enable me to continue on the journey. And so he needs, to see, he needs an encounter with God's glory. And then as he encounters God's glory, he begins to reflect God's glory. As you read later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 sometime, but not this morning. Right? So, so Moses wants to see God's glory. God's glory shows up in the tabernacle, Exodus chapter 39. And the reason that God's glory shows up is because Moses did everything exactly, we read it over and over again, exactly as the Lord commanded. Moses in building the tabernacle was perfectly obedient and perfect obedience means a heart completely committed to following God and if my heart is committed to following God to the measure that my heart is committed, I will display God's glory. That's the way it works. So Moses' obedience leads to the presence of glory. And, and, and then um, within the tabernacle, 
Ultimately, the glory resides in a box called the Ark of the Covenant, right? And so you kind of picture here in Exodus, the glory of God fills the tabernacle, but ultimately the glory of God, it comes to rest in this box called the Ark of the Covenant. So this Ark is, is the place containing the glory. And God says in Exodus 34, look, you can't even see my glory and live. So the glory is in the box, but don't open the box or you'll die. And of course, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know exactly this, right? <laughs> right? So, that, I mean, the glory is in the box. That's, that's it. Now, let me explain to you what we can learn from this. In, like in 1 Samuel 4, there's a story that happens that shows why we f- miss it with glory often. Uh, by 1 Samuel 4, Israel's hearts have departed from following God. Every man did that which is right in his own eyes, right? So Israel's got this problem, but they still have the box. Are you hearing me? Like my heart's gone, but I still have all the forms that make me look religious. Very dangerous place to be. And, and, and so the Philistines attack Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and they're defeated. And then they go, man, why did we lose the battle? And, uh, you know, 3,000 dead. So they come back, and they, they ponder this, and their, their elders come up with a solution. This is what they say. Why has the Lord defeated us? Oh, I know. 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, verse 3. Let's take the ark into battle that it may deliver us. What? Oh, look, in the beginning, what Moses wanted was the glory of God, right? But watch this, the glory of God showed up in a particular form. And so then it became, over time, easy to think that as long as I have the form, I have the glory. And I'm just going to say, this is a huge problem to this day. It's in us to simply think, you know, what do I have to do to succeed and, and just try and do that same thing over and over again? I've had this happen here at Bethany where I'll preach a sermon, it'll be this overwhelmingly positive response, and then I'll, like even between services, I'll scratch my head and I'll go, man, what did I just do that this happened, this worked so well? Was it the music? Was it the lights? Was it the, and I'll look at my notes. And, I, and then, you know, the next service, I'll go, if I could just do exactly the same thing, then I'll get the same response. And whenever I think that way, here's what happens. Second attempt, disaster. Every, t- every time. Every time. Why? Because I'm making this critical mistake of con- confusing form for reality. It happens all through the Bible. Oh, yeah, look, I'm fine. I go to church. I'm fine. I read my Bible. I'm fine. I pray. I'm fine. I give. I'm fine. I go to a Bible study. I'm fine. And, I, and I can pray and, and, and go to church and read my Bible and give and serve in committees. I can be busy for God, active, arguing about form, defending form, and still the glory of God has left and I don't even know it. <laughs> because the glory is present. Listen, to the extent that I am passionate to see the glory. That's the only thing. So any form works. You know, we don't need to argue about music or the logo or what I wear. Please don't argue about what I wear. Because <laughs> whether I have a collar or not is it, it, not a determinant of whether glory shows up. 
And whether there's an organ here or no organ, or music 600 years old or music written yesterday, not the point. Or good preaching or bad preaching, or reading from a manuscript, or doing what I do, super anime, it's all, it doesn't matter. If the heart is wrong, we miss it. The form is not the point, but it is the point for many of us. And so then we see in Ezekiel chapter 7, the glory of God, man, shows up when uh, the temple is built in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. And the glory now is, it's in the ark, in the temple, but in Ezekiel 7 through 10, there's idolatry going on amongst the nation of Israel and oppression and bribery and all this bad stuff. And yet we still, oh, look, in, in spite of our materialism, in spite of our arrogance, in spite of our idolatry, instead of, in spite of our sexual anarchy, we've got a building, we've got programs, we've got singing, we've got preaching, good enough. And so Israel's doing all the right things outwardly and their heart is departed from God. And so what happens in Ezekiel 7 through 10, you can read it, you've got the temple and you've got the kind of the holy place and the holy of holies and the ark of the covenant and the glory, right? And what happens is this, the glory in Ezekiel 7 through 10, it leaves the ark and goes into the holy of holies and then it leaves the holy of holies into the inner court, from the inner court to the outer court, from the outer court to the court of the Gentiles, to the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And then by, by the time you get to the end of Ezekiel 10, the glory of God, it just, it just leaves, it just disappears completely. And there's, it's a dual tragedy. Not only did the glory of God leave, that's bad news, Here's the worst news no one noticed. Why? Because you know what? It's just another Sunday, man. We sing, we pray, we drop a little money in, we take some notes, we go home. Who needs glory when we've got a good building? <laughs> who needs glory uh, when we're Americans? And we got a good national defense. But like, who needs glory? Hey, we all need glory. If we're going to be people of hope in this world, the one thing we need is to display the glory of God. That's the one thing we need. And the glory left Israel, and that plunged Israel into deep darkness because we did not see the glory of God mentioned again for 400 years. It's called the silent period between the two testaments. No, no glory. The Babylonians come in, they destroy the temple, they destroy the city. There's war, there's famine, there's disease. There's displacement, there's loss. Israel as a nation ceases to exist until 1948. Bottom of the story. And then right at the bottom, hope, John 1.14. Glory appears again. When everything seems lost, at just the right time, Christ came, right? The Word became flesh. That's John 1.14. And what does it say? The Word, Christ, became flesh, and we beheld His glory. And His glory is the glory of God. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Christ. Because Christ in his living is displaying God's glory. He's not flashy. He's not a super charismatic personality. It says in Isaiah, he had no stately form of majesty that we should even want to look at him. Rather plain. But the glory of God, absolutely clear. Why? Because the glory of God is revealed as Christ crosses social divides, which he did all the time. And the glory of God is revealed in Christ's power to heal. And the glory of God is revealed in Christ's unconditional love for everyone, but especially the poor, the marginalized, and enemies. His love infinitely expressed, glorious. And the glory most fully revealed in his willingness to die and then rise from the dead, having the final words saying, this is the end of the story, not here, but here. <laughs> so, 
you hear that and, and you could be like this. Oh, that's cool. I'm glad Jesus died. And I'm glad he lived so well. Does it get any better than that? Finally, someone pulled it off. Someone lived glorious. Good. I'll receive Christ as my personal Savior. And I'll follow him as an inspiring, kind of this inspiring example. The way, you know, I follow Lindsey Vaughn and try to ski better. I know I'll never ski that well, but I'll try. Listen, if, if you're thinking that way, you don't understand your faith. It's not a matter of trying harder. And Jesus, you know, having forgiven you, now kind of standing up here saying, go on, climb better. Not, zero, that's not it. Why? And here's how I know this. Uh, Romans 5.10 says, if I'm reconciled by the death of Christ, and I am, much more having been reconciled, I'll be saved by his life. And when I grew up in the church, I had always um, woven together the concept of reconciliation and salvation, thinking them to be the same thing. Oh yeah, salvation, that means I get to go to heaven when I die. No, it doesn't. That's reconciliation. Reconciliation means God is no longer angry with you because Christ himself, 1 John 2, is the propitiation for your sin. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, you need never wonder if God loves you. He lo he's done. The penalty paid, whatever penalty there was, paid in Christ in full. You can know that you know by virtue of that cross that you can approach God at any time. And someone should kind of say amen or something right there because that's really good news. I'm not God's enemy ever. And believe me, I fail all the time and this is hope. And yet that's not the end of the story. I'm reconciled by his death, but I'm saved by his what? Life. What does that even mean? I'm saved from the prisons within me that are preventing me from displaying the glory of God. My bitterness, lust, fear, anger, greed, cynicism, shame, self-righteousness, all of that can be dealt with, and here's why. I'm saved by the life of Christ, not because he's held up as an example, but because Christ lives in me. And that's the culmination of the story. Christ came, died, rose again, then disappeared, right? He's gone. And you're like this. Man, if Peter was following Jesus and he couldn't even be faithful when he was here on earth, good luck for me. He's, he's gone. <laughs> but he's not gone. Colossians 1 is the culmination of the story. And what you see in this passage is Paul saying, I was made a minister of this gospel which was hidden from previous generations. No one saw it back here, but I was made a minister of proclaiming this truth, and this is the truth, the mystery hidden from previous generations, which is what? Colossians 1, 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So where does the glory of God reside now? It was uh, in, in creation fully and in man perfectly. Then, throughout this season of darkness, it showed up in a box in a tabernacle, on Moses' face, in the temple. Then it disappeared completely. And then when all seemed lost, it showed up in Christ. And then Christ disappeared completely. But the culmination of the story is this. The glory has returned, now taking up residence in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. If a world racked with the fears of terrorism and the alienation and loneliness and addiction caused by, by sexual anarchy and easy access to media... 
In a world wracked by greed and bankruptcy and debt and nationalism and tribalism and hate and racism, if that world will ever see hope, real hope, do you know where they'll see it? In you. <laughs> in you. With your neighbors, with your co-workers, with your spouse, with your children, in our life together, Christ in you, that's the hope of glory. Wow. And that hope, don't you love this? That hope is better than this hope. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, what is it? The preposition is everything. They what? They walked with God. With God. Moses, he could see a little reflection of God's glory. Now it's not with, it's not a reflection. Now it's what? Christ in you. You have everything you need to be the presence of generosity and joy and hope and peace and mercy and healing because you have Christ. That's incredible to me. That's why Jesus said it this way. Abide in me and what? You'll bear fruit. Why? <laughs> because when, when, look, when you abide in me, then you will be living in the same manner in which I lived. And the reason that Jesus was able to display the glory of God is because of a little phrase that occurs over and over again in the Gospel of John. This, here's, if Jesus had a mantra, and don't bug me about that later, like, are you Hindu? No, I'm not. But if Jesus had a mantra, this is what it would be. Not my own. That'd be his mantra. Because it shows up all, all through the Bible. My teaching is not my own. It's from the Father. My authority, not my own. My will, not my own. My judgment, not my own. My works, not my own. My strength, not my own. Ultimately, my life, not my own. Jesus is saying, I am living my life 24-7 available to the Father so that the character and glory of God can be revealed through me in my humanity. So my life is not my own, it's his. My teaching is not my own, his. My judgment, my authority, my will, my works, my strength. And then Jesus says, just before leaving, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Wow. What does that mean? That means Jesus is saying to us gathered here this morning this very simple truth. I'm calling you to live in dependency with me, Christ, in the same way that I, Christ, lived in dependency on the Father. So that even as the Father saw fit to reveal God's glory through me, now God will reveal nothing less than the glory of God seen in Christ through you as you become available to Christ. Not your will, his. Not your judgment, his. Not your money, his. Not your sexual ethic, his. His. <laughs> Why? Because he lives in you. And as you make yourself available and allow him then to express life through you, not only do you reflect the glory of God, but life becomes a great adventure. And here's the, kind of the punchline summary statement before we respond. We'll see this over and over again. This is, this is huge in the Bible. Let's close with this phrase. It's just an observation, but a truth. The bottom is the beginning. The bottom's the beginning of hope. We don't think that way, but it's true. Temple destroyed. National identity annihilated. Roman Empire oppressing. Sick, poor, marginalized are all outcast. I mean, 
We did a baby dedication this morning. Babies tossed on garbage heaps. Slavery. Christ shows up. It'll change everything. There's leper colonies in, uh, colonies in India right now that, uh, that have become hospitals and places of care and hospice because Christ showed up. There's people being few, uh, freed from human trafficking because Christ showed up. Marriages are healed because Christ showed up. Bodies are healed because Christ showed up. Infants are healed because Christ showed up. Not every infant is healed. Not every leper enjoys this, but this is the trajectory of history. Do you see? The bottom's the beginning of hope. My dad dies. I'm plunged into depression, sickness, and invited to know Christ as life. Changes everything for me. Rwanda, nation, genocide, defeat, reconciliation. We'll hear more. Health, cancer, Christ. Marriage, infidelity, Christ. Job, unemployment, Christ. Light, darkness, Christ. I could do that for an hour because I'm a pastor and have been for 30 years, right? This is the story that God is writing in the world. The bottom is the beginning of hope. So as we close this morning, I'm going to ask you to complete this phrase. God's glory met me at the bottom when I got divorced. I had cancer. I had to move. Whatever it is. And would you share your stories in these books? I ask you to share it, and here's why. Because people read them. And as you do, don't put your name. It's just your story. It's fine. Just a sentence. God's glory met me in the disruption of, and that's where hope began. So that we go out knowing this is the story that God is writing in the world. We'll look at it every week through a different lens. But our calling is to tell everyone we meet, this is not the end of the story. This is the beginning. A bomb in New York, not the end. A bomb in Paris, not the end. Syria, not the end. An immigration crisis, not the end. Your crisis, not the end. The beginning. Amen? Father, meet us here now as we respond. Thank you. Thank you that you are writing a story over and over again in order that we might be a people of hope in our city and our world. We give you the glory for that in the name of Christ who is our hope. Amen.